and welcome to the Dead Darlings podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney. I'm Laurie Eves. And I'm Hannah Hutzper. Dead Darlings is a monthly podcast for the spoken word community. Each month we'll be bringing you interviews, tips, inspiration and above all awesome poetry from the spoken word scene. We'll also be telling you what's on and where you can submit your work. This month, our first month of 2023, we'll only be interviewing Kayla Martel Feldman. Yay! And we'll be hearing a poem from Vron McIntyre. And we'll be giving you a sneak preview of our book review episode, where we'll be chatting about Mannerism by Yami Sode. That will be out later in the month. But first, what have you guys been up to since the last episode? Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Hannah, what have you been up to? (laughs) So... I am racking my brains for exactly when the recording time was because Christmas, New Year's, my brain has gone to soup. But poetry things I have been to recently-ish. Insight, which I host, Insight LGBTQ plus cabaret spoken word night, had its final gig of the year and it was lovely. It's It's mostly online at this point, but people really brought their Santa hats and it was gorgeous. I also went to Bad Betty Live, which happened to be on the day of a train strike. So... Although Joelle Taylor was listed as a headliner, she was not able to make it. And there were, I think it would have been a much bigger gig if if Train Strikes hadn't been on. That said, solidarity. And that was even said from the stage. And there was an excellent Genesis final, which I think some of the rest of you might be picking up the thread. All of the rest of us, including our mystery voice, were at the Genesis Slam final. Mystery Voice is, in fact, our guest, Kayla Martell Feldman. How did you find the Genesis final? How did I find it? Um, What did you enjoy it? I was about Not to say, I got up at Whitechapel. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> I had a great time. It was wonderful. I think pretty much all of my mates, I got just got to com- compete against all of my mates. And <laughs> and like most of them made it through to the second round, two of them made it through to the final round. I saw some great poets that I hadn't met before. It was a really fun time. They had an absolute chaotic raffle. Um, <laughs> it did. It did. That was brilliant. <laughs> I've realised raffles are not my energy. Can I put it that way? That was extraordinary. We had a meet-up recently and Laurie just had a big rant about how he hates raffles. Just Gosh, no. Don't tell Kaz. Don't tell Kaz. I love the <laughs> idea of the raffle. I love the idea of the raffle. But I might have found the raffle slightly stressful. But we had a lovely time anyway. We were running <laughs> late, but great. the poet sounded great. And that's what matters. Amazing. Laurie, what have you been up to? Well, as well as uh, Genesis Final, which we've just talked about. Uh, we met up in real life, the we three did. of us. That that, nice. that happens sometimes. We went and had a lovely, lovely lunch and a little bit of a chat about what we might be doing with the podcast this year, which was exciting. Um, we got some plans afoot, um, including a few little format tweaks that we might talk about as we get through the episode. I've just started reading a whacking great Iris Kalam and Hannah Gordon recommended to me called The Reality Street Book of Sonnets. Um, which I don't know if Ooh. either of you guys uh, have seen yeah. before. It's this big anthology from 2008 of just all sonnets by a load of different poets, but they're all very deconstructed. Like they might do a lot of different um, interesting like visual layouts or play with the form in different ways. Like some of them are com- completely like pictures and things like that. They're not actually like words as such. So. That's um, something I just dipped a toe into and we'll have, probably have more to say on next month, but it's an exciting little book, um, but quite a big book that I'm having a look at at the minute. I have been to a couple of parties with people asking, what are the New Year's resolutions that, that people have? Uh, and I've skillfully avoided answering them in relation to writing. I don't know <laughs> if anybody here has any New Year resolutions they want to 
throw out there. How was your 100 rejections last year, Rebecca? Did you get to oh, 100? pathetically bad. No, no, I did not. <laughs> uh, but I did get some stuff published that I wouldn't have done otherwise. But I know Kayla has got... We are going to chat about this with Kayla in the interview because Kayla actually successfully managed it and has a lot of a lot of very interesting thoughts about it. Successfully, 122. <laughs> Woo! Oh, 122 Jesus. rejections. Take that. That is some overachieving. That is amazing. <laughs> that is. <laughs> is it? <laughs> I don't know. How does that work? How do you count them? Some every time, oh, every time I submit something or mm-hmm. apply for something or email someone asking for something like related to work or poetry or writing, uh, and they say no, <laughs> that is That's one pretty good definition. To be fair, yeah, yeah. Some <laughs> poems sense. have like a whole CV uh, of uh-huh. their rejections. <laughs> I've been rejected by some of the best publishing houses. Yeah, in the exactly. <laughs> Put that on your CV. Yeah. <laughs> How about um, you, Rebecca? Uh, New Year's resolutions? Not really. I did. I did think when you're talking about sonnets, maybe 2023 years to, needs to be the year I stop being afraid of sonnets and 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 write one. Uh, you should yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe that should be one. Uh, I'm trying to avoid doing it. What I have done is downloaded a trial of Scrivener. Which is like a um, so I've upgraded from being you know when you go and you buy the beautiful notebook at Christmas and this is going to be the notebook that you're going to mm. write the thing in mm. it's going to be the notebook I seem to have upgraded from that to I'm going to buy software that is designed mm. for writing novels on Hello. Um, and I'm kind of so I've downloaded a free trial of it so I'm going to see if it actually does help uh, mm-hmm. with my what I've been euphemistically calling my longer fictional project um, that sounds like a novel to me. It's called a longer fictional project because uh, <laughs> I'm scared of pressure. Um, but um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. But I, it, it does feel a bit like, oh, I've bought, I've spent the money on the thing. Therefore, I'm going to do it. Uh-huh. It's like the gym membership, right? Mm. Uh, yep. And we all know that that's not necessary. That always going works. To happen. Yeah, the sunk we'll cost see. fallacy always works. Yeah. That's never gone wrong. We will see. But I have, I've kind of got to a point where I'm like, actually, I could do with different ways to organize things, which is what it does. So, mm-hmm. so we'll cool. see. We'll see if that is useful. Um, but yeah, other than that, quite a poetry quiet month, to be honest, because yeah. I have been uh, both kind of fluey and, and miserable. So, yeah. uh, but Genesis Slam was awesome. Fluey and miserable is the title of, ne- of the chat book, right? <laughs> yeah, possibly. How about you, Kayla? How about how about me? What have I been doing the last month? Yeah, what's your poetry month been like? Oh gosh, um, well I've been reading a lot. I I my last book of twenty twenty two was Poor by Caleb Femi, and oh, then my first book awesome. of twenty twenty three is I'm rereading In Search of Equilibrium by Teresa Lola. Um, we had our final process event um, at the end of. And you December. guys had the catch of contemplation, chin we- chin did have the casual conversation chin, 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 chin. Um, and uh, when Tyrone said let's not you know it's December let's not do and it's just after the bank holiday like let's not do features let's just have open mic and we'll do the casual contemplation he explained it to me about five times and I was like uh-huh. I don't know what this is but I trust you uh-huh. and it was great it was a really really special evening um it was really magical so to explain couch of contemplation for our listeners um this this was a lovely thing uh dreamt up by was it rick the most and matt um was, uh, yeah it was matt cummins and forget what you heard about spoken word yeah which was a night that sort of used to run until about six seven years ago and i only encountered it when boomerang did a one-off special thing and it is wonderful so what happens is your first poem on the open mic comes up poet does their poem 
then a bunch of other poets go and sit on the couch of contemplation, chun, 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 and they discuss, they basically sort of say, this is the poem I'd like to do, and here's how it relates to the poem that's just gone. And they mm-hmm. kind of have a discussion between themselves, and between themselves they decide, you know, if you get three poets that want to go next, they decide which poem would follow on naturally, and then that poem mm-hmm. goes up. In the meantime, the audience is chatting about the poem and really thinking about it, and it sounds mad and yeah. quite admin heavy, I think. It was like, so quite, admin heavy. <laughs> yeah, quite consensusy, but it's so lovely because you just get yeah. people really thinking about the poem, really engaging. You have to really listen. Thinking about, yeah, you have to listen. You have to think about, well, what themes am I trying to communicate in my poem? How does it relate to this? And it's just, it, it's a really nice way to run a night. Like it just is really lovely. And I really wanted to go to the process one. And I was so fluey that I was just like, I, I was like, I'll have a nap before I before I go, and then I just I was like lying in bed, like I, I don't think I can get out of the bed. So I you're having the nap of contemplation. I the was. nap of contemplation. We will be doing yeah. it again. Yay! At some point. Great. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sounds brilliant. good. So one thing we're trying to introduce, as Laurie said, we kind of want to get into having more of a discussion of different issues on the podcast. Issues, questions, issues. questions. ideas. Yeah, things in the poetry scene. Yes, hot topics. I was trying. I was trying with calling it hot mic, but I don't know. I'm hot mic to... sounds a bit like magic mic, and I'm not sure yeah. that would be quite the vibe. <laughs> Is we're that for. where you went with that? I was kind of thinking that we might call it hot topics, and we might go hot topic, hot topic, like we were on Top Gear or something. Yeah, sort of shock jock radio of... stuff. Okay. Uh... <laughs> okay. Now we're going to be doing the hot topic. The hot topic for today is which is the best lord. Lord of the Dance, Lord of the Flies, or Lord of the Rings. Um, that was me doing Alan Partridge. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So our first one that we thought we wanted to talk about was trigger and content warnings at open mic night. So Hannah, this was this was your idea, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I want to start off by saying I'm not saying like should we have them or should we not. It's going to be that is not what I no. want to discuss. But um, I saw um, I was watching. This is going to hurt the uh, TV, the TV drama based on a doctor's memoirs. And there was one episode Mm. I saw where it started with a content warning, this episode will touch on suicide. And then I spent the entire episode trying to work out who, where, when would this happen. Mm. And I realised that um, content... I think I already knew it, but this like really illustrated for me. Content warnings are not neutral to storytelling. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have them. But it does... Like, if there's going to be a twist and you need to content note what the twist is, then it's not a twist anymore. Mm -hmm. Um... And I yeah. also started to twig that <laughs> that it's hugely variable what people do and don't uh, content note. Like I saw someone yeah. who said, content warning, this poem's about Brexit, which mm-hmm. given what year it happened, like it was unavoidable, whatever, or I don't know. To me, that felt excessive. And then their next poem was about racism and they didn't content note that at all. Right. Yeah, I do and... find that really interesting where people do the kind of, the sort of joke, con- the ha-ha-ha sort of, ah, oh, content oh, warning, this is was... about Brexit or whatever. Mm. And it's... Or even oh, not jokey, bit... where they choose something that seems maybe somewhat trivial. Yeah, and I'm kind of like, is that, do you actually think that somebody needs that is that a is that a dad joke it does feel a bit like a dad joke like oh we're going to be talking about some stuff that may upset people like is that helpful is that like is it a problem if it if it the idea becomes so watered down because i do find that when people use the word triggered to mean annoyed 
Mm, you know like it's supposed to be about kind of somebody having a really visceral trauma reaction right it's kind of connection that connects to ptsd and then when people Mm. use it just to mean oh you're annoyed by that you're triggered by it and people will say oh i am triggered and they'll mean i this sets me off on one which is not Mm. what it's supposed to be at all like does that trivialize it is that helpful does that make it worse you know what i mean i i yeah i feel like yeah overuse is kind of equivalent to like people not go oh i'm a bit ocd meaning that they tidy their fucking room like there's there's there is there is that um but also there is like even even if people aren't taking the piss like i don't think we have developed a collective understanding of what things do and don't require one and therefore Mm -hmm. it's this hugely variable yeah yeah like grab bag of what people guess other people might makes me wince when people use the word triggered frivolously for lack of a better word because i'm because i'm thinking well if i get triggered it genuinely is i mean i've never had anyone point a gun at my head and pull the trigger but i i imagine that is how i would feel is that i'm having a severe trauma response and there's a difference between me feeling triggered and having a response and me feeling upset by something um and and on what Hannah said about what people choose to trigger one, I, I think sometimes it's done with good intentions and sometimes not. With that example about Brexit, I'm thinking, well, what was their poem about? Was it about family differences in voting? Was it about the xenophobia that um, that uh, the Brexit reveals in, in a lot of people? And if so, maybe those are the things to warn for, not for Brexit. So, mm. um, but then I also get really frustrated is that a lot actually now with poetry where people are being encouraged to give trigger warnings. I've seen so many, so many poets who will say, you know, trigger warning and then not say what it's for or trigger warning. This oh. happened at Genesis a few months ago, actually. It was when people say, oh, you know, trigger warning for trauma. And I'm like, that doesn't tell me <laughs> anything. What that tells me is that you think that this might need a trigger but you don't want to tell me what that is so I'm then mm. really tense because I'm like I don't know what I'm looking at um mm. but then also someone earlier this month I think it was uh, it was at a different poetry you night know, and and they said you know trigger warning for you know everything and I'm like well that doesn't tell me anything either because I'm like and then I'm mm. and then there was nothing in the poem that I felt I felt I needed a trigger warning but I'm okay I'm thinking okay none of those were my triggers they might have been for someone mm. else but I don't really understand it's not a warning if you're not telling me what you're warning for. Yeah. I guess another part of it that comes off that is, like, as the promoter or the host of a night, what responsibility you have. Um, I guess you always have a duty of care to your audience. You also have mm. a duty of care to your performers, and you kind of always are balancing that. Mm. And I don't know, like, as a host, I think, we often kind of blanket say things like, you know, this is a poetry night. You're going to hear things that go into all sorts of directions. I guess a question would also be around what is the purpose of of a warning? I guess the purpose mm. really is that you're telling people it's okay to remove yourself mm. from this because you're already here. You're already present in the in the night. What we're telling you, either the poet or the or the promoter and host is saying is you might hear you're quite likely potentially to hear stuff that might be upsetting or you know triggering in that um kind of more bodily sense um you're we're giving you the permission to to remove yourself from the room because there's no other other than like starting to uh 
harangue the poet, there's not really other, another course of action off the back of a trigger warning yeah. or a I mean, I suppose warning. there's a just be prepared so it doesn't come as a shock. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, how, that's what it does for me as someone who, who does have like really specific triggers is that it's like i'm sorry i don't have a better analogy but it's like with that with that that gun analogy is like a trigger warning is like someone showing me that the gun's not loaded so i'm still looking at it mm. but they're show i i know they've they've shown me that the gun is not loaded so that it's like it's like saying these are just words it's okay mm. so i know yeah, what i'm about to hear i know that i know that what they're talking about isn't happening in real time whereas if i don't have that warning my brain might be tricked into believing that I'm in danger. Mm. So I like all the, and it it doesn't need to be that, you know, that much of a thing. It's just like, ah, trigger warning. I'm going to talk about sexual assault, something like that. Uh, And, or, you know, content note, this poem includes, you know, references to racism and, you know, and then it's like, okay, well now I know that that's just words and that's not real. And my brain won't be tricked into thinking it is. Mm. If if that makes sense. It's like it not being a jump scare. Almost. It's such mm. another analogy that the one I always think of is there was a night where one of the regulars turned up and um, wanted to get naked as a bit of a twist at the end of his poem. There's at least two people that could be. There's a, well, yeah, I think it was a couple of people uh, said it, but, you know, kind of one of them just sort of said, well, I'm not going to do a trigger warning because this is supposed to be the twist ending. And it's like, oh, the twist ending is your dick. There's something about, like, actually, people are entitled not to look at your genitals if yeah. they don't want to. And for people to say, oh, actually, fair warning, this is going to contain nudity. And that's all it needs. It doesn't have to be, like, at the end, I'm going to go, ta-da, and there will be my penis. But you have to say, you know, this performance <laughs> is going to contain some nudity. Mm. I don't think it's an unfair expectation and the person refused to do it. You mm. know, they sort of say, I won't be doing a warning. So even... the night in question had to say, right, we have well, a blanket policy of no nudity now. Because also, if you're not going to warn people, then yeah. And I mean, this is a tangent from the content warning discussion. But I think some ven- like venues might need different types of licenses if full nudity is happening. <laughs> and the nudity thing is not so much about like nudity per se, but like in relation to trigger warnings, I sort of think, well, is a naked person a terrifying or triggering thing? Not necessarily. But do I also? get to exercise a choice about whether I look at it, yes. Yeah. Or whether I engage with somebody's yes, the basic tenant of any kind of Have you consented mm. to see that? Yeah. yeah. Do I I can I can just say actually do you know what your dick is not for me is a fair point. <laughs> and actually to be able to say that about actually do you know what this poem about this yeah. topic mm. maybe not for me. I think people also um like feel a pressure to warn for everything and you can't you just can't mm. warn yeah. you can't give triggers for everything because there are more common triggers and there are far less common triggers one of my big triggers is car accidents that's not any that's not something that anyone would think to warn for um because mm. it's not super common but also that when we're talking about trigger warnings we're also talking we're talking about like medical conditions that people have and that includes anxiety ptsd ocd things like that but also it's common practice in, in theatres, for example, to warn for, for um, flashing lights, mm. um, sudden loud yeah. noises, um, audience blinders, which are just bright lights that come on, things like that. And that's, I think, the, the sphere that you have to put it in is if you would warn for, mm. for sudden loud noises and flashing lights, you should also possibly warn for content um, yeah. with the knowledge that you don't know what's going to set everyone off. You just have to do the best you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like triggers can be highly personal and i know some nights that have specific lists of things you absolutely can't do which are not on would not be everyone's usual and clearly there is like it's highly personal and you can't model for everything 
But I also think that like the spoken word community is broadly extremely nice and cares a lot about mental health and wants to do their best. Um, but there's almost... I feel like it's almost um, a identity that I'm a nice person who cares about mental health um, is kind of a given in the scene to the extent that I feel like some content warnings are almost more threat modelling than I actually think this will trigger someone, if that makes sense. Like, more, I don't want to be seen as a shithouse who takes this lightly. I don't want to phrase this like, it's bad to be worried about upsetting someone or attached to if you do upset someone. But I think you sometimes do. You want to talk... You you have a right to be provocative you have a right to be yeah. um or to just talk about stuff that is hard talking right? about stuff that is hard yeah mm. that's probably more what i mean than yeah than that. The, the, provocative. The, you yeah. are looking with art to generate an emotional reaction it's just balancing that emotional reaction with is this actually creating trauma for somebody rather yeah. than mm. is this evoking and communicating about what that subject is because um, I do think there is a tendency with trigger warnings, particularly in sort of wider discourse, where the conversation is, well, they're just censoring people, which I kind of seems mad to me because it's not. It's saying, I'm going to say these things, but here's a heads up. So if you don't want it, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or just gird your loins. It's a title yourself, you know? or a subtitle, not a not a redacting the whole yeah. page. Like. In conclusion, I don't really think we know. We don't have thoughts. an answer. Yeah, we don't have an answer. It's difficult, <laughs> isn't it? It's hard. Don't at us, but you can at us. Yeah, no, do at us. Know have a conversation. Think. I mean, potentially to be continued. I feel like this is an evolving yeah. thing. Like We haven't really looked at the content warnings yeah. themselves. Hot Topics yet. Part 2. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, shall we do an interview? Let's do an interview. This month's interview is with Kayla Martell-Feldman. Kayla Martell-Feldman is an Anglo-American Jewish poet who is also a writer and director for Stage and Screen. She has performed poetry across London and elsewhere and hosts the Process Spoken Word Open Mic Night with Tyrone Lewis. Her work has been published by Last Leaves Magazine, Kitchen Table Quarterly, Tart Magazine, Exist Otherwise, Erato, Messy Misfits Club, Fifth Wheel Press, Pop Shot Quarterly, Durillure Press, Moon Love and 9VT slash 5. And she's also been featured on the Dead Darlings and Artists That Work podcast. Ooh. That first one sounds pretty good. The first yeah. one sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> she is a two-time Genesis Poetry Slam winner and has had work commissioned by JW3, Canada Water Theatre, Watch Your Mouth, Vashti Media and The Narcissist Cookbook. In 2020, she took part in the invite-only Roundhouse Poetry Weekender led by Bridget Minimore and Cecilia Knapp. In 2021, she self-published her debut poetry collection, Tikva. Her second collection, Same Story, will be released in November 2023 with Verve Poetry Press. Kayla, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> We're really happy to have you. So this is this is great. This is a nice coincidence. So would you like to kick us off with a poem? Yes, I would love to. Um, I'm not going to caveat this or, or something I'm trying to do more is just to let my poems speak themselves. No. This poem is called The Oral Tradition. Evolution is lazy. Gave us just enough to beat the others, so we raced ahead for a while until we ran out of track, and we'll fall back eventually, get stampeded in the final lap for gold, but man, it was fun while it lasted. We used to tell stories. Round fires and camps we lived in, not just travelled to. 
Of every tree passed on our journey there, myths made in a fungus that showed us God. Futures read in calluses and craters and cold excrement warning of bears gone by, legends and adages and fables repeated again and again. Remember this. Remember what I am telling you. Tell your children when I am gone and over and over and over. And when we started writing them down, it didn't matter how we spelled our names or where the commas went or where to break our poems because we knew when we ran out of breath and when to stop speaking. We knew where the stories ended. We built machines to think for us so we didn't have to evolve bigger memory banks. With a terabyte in my pocket, who needs it? I can ask a frequency of light, what time it is at my aunt's house in Dallas, Kate Winslet's net worth, John Stewart's birthday, the date 30 days from now, things that rhyme with flounder, synonyms for sundown, syllables and the collected works of Mark Twain. Light can write a poem for me, but it cannot tell you a story. Not really. You will not see its face in the glow of the flames or watch its breath curl hot in winter air. You will not feel its arms around you at bedtime. It cannot hold your hand. That a line of iambic pentameter is the length of a human breath is poetry in and of itself. That it beats a tattoo upon the breast of its audience is not an accident of fate, but a practice of our forebears, because we did practice it. We made music of them, all the better to remember, injected them with meaning, the better to keep them alive, gave our gods a thousand names just in case we forgot some. And when we printed our stories, we gave them authors, never mind if they even existed. Homer. King of all poets might have given us what may or may not have been one of a hundred buried cities, which was probably, maybe, Troy. Before the printing, before Homer, Plato and Aeschylus gave us Patroclus and Achilles. What a name to give a god. And in my language, what a way to bury the lead. The greatest love story of a brittle age, lost in the writing, submerged beneath the dirt. You do not get the words without the speaking. I have so much more to say than I can ever write. We are more here together than I ever am alone on paper. Italics pale when pit against a raised voice or the breaking of one. Evolution is lazy and I have a terabyte in my hand and I'm afraid of forgetting all the things I have to say. So why don't you tell me your stories as you remember them? Never mind if they're true. Nice. So normally we start off by asking people how they got into poetry, but I kind of feel like that poem is like begging a little bit more conversation. Yeah, it's more how poetry started in the first place. Yes. Um, so my understanding is that that was kind of sparked off by someone saying to you that poetry and spoken word were different because they came from different traditions. One came from the oral tradition and one came from a kind of written literary tradition. And your argument is, nah, fuck that, they're the same thing. Is that fair? Uh Sort of. <laughs> I don't, I don't, okay, so I don't, I think they're the same thing is, is a bigger discussion. I don't think that's a yes or no answer. They're the same thing. Um, because I think they are the same form experienced in a different way. Um, and I, it, that, that poem was inspired specific. I, I mean, I say that in the same way that reading a play and watching a play are mm -hmm. very, very different. Yeah. It's the same words, it's the same story, but you're experiencing them very differently. And um, that poem was inspired by someone saying to me, and it was it was with the, I, I interpreted it as a tone of condescension, but that's probably not how they intended it. But um, they said that spoken word and poetry were different mm -hmm. because poetry comes from the written 
tradition and um, spoken word from the oral one. Um, and the reason why I think that's bullshit is because spoken language is tens of thousands of years older than written language. Um, and we have written stories from time before we were even writing stories. We were just telling them, yeah. you know, the, look at the, like the Bible, yeah. for example, the, the first <laughs> book ever printed was the Bible. I think that's correct. You can fact check Probably. that. Actually, no, I think I'm wrong. I think I'm remembering someone saying the first printing, the first thing that was printed on a printing press mm. was the Bible. Possibly that's what I mean. Anyway, regardless, um, you know, the, 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 the story is like Homer's Odyssey. Yeah, that Beowulf. that was written down by someone. And yeah, Beowulf, exactly. Like these stories were written down after they had been told mm-hmm. for generations. Mm. The people that originally came up with those stories are long dead and then they got written down. So you know i guess if you want to get technical what i mean is the written the written tradition comes from the oral one mm-hmm. so so really everything comes from the oral from the oral tradition and where within that whole canon and tradition of written and spoken did kayla martel feldman start in in it all and how did <laughs> you did get into poetry <laughs> in the first place <laughs> how did i get into poetry in the first place um so I have I've written poems for longer than I can remember because I re- I know I remember the first poem I ever I remember no the first poem I remember writing I know is not the first poem I wrote okay and um, the first poem I remember writing is when I accidentally found porn on the internet when I was six <laughs> and Ooh. I wrote a poem about it um, but I know that that know. wasn't the first poem oh I wrote oh my god I want to <laughs> no I have no idea what happened to that <laughs> yes. poem and I'm glad wow. <laughs> Um, but I, I've always written as long as I can remember, I've always written poems. Um, and you know, I I grew up surrounded by books. Um, I am the, I'm the only, uh, writer. Oh God, I fucking hate this word. I'm the only professional writer in my family. Like my family, my, you know, my dad has written the occasional poem, but it, you know, my sister is, my sister's as well, but they, I mean, they, they tend to be for like, you know, it's someone's birthday or write them a poem or things like that. Um, that's also not to say that those are worth any less than mine. Um, but I, you know, I was raised with, I, you know, a children's garden, garden of verses and mm. Robert Browning and Shel Silverstein. Those are all, you know, poets that I loved. I remember when I was really little, six or seven, I wrote, a, I wrote a letter, a fan letter to Robert Louis Stevenson. <laughs> and, um, my dad had to gently tell me that he, he was long dead. Oh. Um, but I, you know, poetry is something actually something that my I you know my sisters and I really loved and I remember um a really early poem I really enjoyed um that I still think is like wow this is a fucking good poem and I experienced it really early in life is um Half Cast by John Agard yeah uh, John Agard um yeah my sister showed me that poem and she said no you you have to read it in his voice you have to read it aloud um and obviously uh she was like you have to read it in his accent and we were two young you know children in the late 90s early noughties we didn't know that you probably shouldn't do that but <laughs> but um but it did make us excited about poetry reading yeah. it aloud um, it's a wonderful poem to hear and aloud. it is and i saw it read aloud because i went on a school trip to a poetry event gcse poetry line no it wasn't we went because our school librarian was performing oh. because our school Amazing. librarian was daljit nagra nice so yeah so he to to me i'm like that's just mr nagra but now i'm now i'm like (laughs) that man is like a he had already won the forward poetry prize by the time he was our school librarian um but so i had yeah so i had a lot of really early exposure to how much performance can add to a poem but i didn't know about spoken word yet um i also you were talking about sonnets earlier it reminded me of 
when I was in primary school. I had a really bad time in primary school because I, I was bullied by teachers. Um, <laughs> so I had a particularly bad time. And I remember I wrote, uh, we were set a, a, a task to write a sonnet. Um, we were learning about sonnets. And I, and there was some kind of competition that we had about, you know, who could write the best sonnet or whatever. And I, and I was like, I want to be a bit different. I want to be creative with it. And they had said, you know, given us the rules of what a sonnet is and, and also said, it's a love poem. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a poem about bees loving flowers. Aww. And they said, it's not a love, it doesn't Aww. count. And they disqualified me because they said it wasn't a sonnet because it wasn't a love poem. And I was like, first of all, a sonnet doesn't have to be a love yeah. poem. Exactly, yeah. it's stupid. But also to me, it was about love. It was about bees loving flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was love. also my first experience of, of someone saying uh, this didn't do everything we said it had to, therefore yeah. it doesn't count. Um, which is probably why I'm now a bit bitchy about... Exactly! I'm a bit oh, bitchy gatekeeping. about gatekeeping. Gatekeeping now, is but... the word, not gatekeepering. That's the study of gatekeeping. Yeah, someone will tell me that's the wrong term. They'll gatekeep <laughs> me from gatekeepering. Um, but I, I, I got into spoken word because I went to uni... Uh, I went to uni of leeds and the first real friend i made um was someone on my course called finn dobson and um, we're still really good friends now but um i thought they were the fucking coolest person ever and i always used to like sit near them in lectures and like and like look at them and be like oh, i want to be friends but they're way too cool to be my friend and then when we became friends i told them i'd been doing that and they were like i was doing the exact same thing anyway um so one day i, I saw them sitting on this little hill outside our faculty building and i was like okay this is my moment to go and be their friend and make them my friend so I asked if I could, I was like, can I sit here? I said, yes. And then, and they were flipping through this booklet of societies at um, Student Union and they were circling the ones that they were thinking about joining. And the page they were on was slam poetry. And I didn't know what that was. I'd never heard that term before. So I, I said, oh, what's that? And they told me about spoken word. Um, and I, that sounded amazing to me. But the spoken word society at our uni was run by a bunch of third years who'd just abandoned it. They didn't do any events. Right. They, didn't do, they didn't do anything yeah. the whole year. Um, so at the end of the year, I got a bunch of uh, a bunch of my fellow first years who I'd, uh, including Finn and some other people that I'd met on a creative writing module I did. And we went to the student union together and we said, you know, the people on this committee aren't doing anything and they haven't, they also haven't held an AGM to decide the committee for next year. Can we just be that yeah. committee? And they said, yes, but that we had to hold an AGM at the start of the following year. So we did that. And that's how, that's how the Leeds University Union Spoken Word Society yeah. was saved. Yeah. Um, and many of those, many of the people on that committee are still doing bits in poetry. One of them was uh, Beth Calverley, uh, mm-hmm. aka the Poetry Machine, who runs yeah. events in Bristol. Um, uh, and then after uni, I moved back to London. And I started going to Spoken Word London and Genesis Slam, which is where I met you lot, where I met uh, Tyrone, who I run Process with now. Um, and that's that's my journey into Yay! Spoken Word. Yay. <laughs> what a journey it was. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Amazing. So alongside that, you're also uh, sort of directing and writing for theatre and film. And I just wondered how mm-hmm. kind of particularly with thinking about sort of um, theatre direction, obviously we've talked a lot about the words, but in terms of kind of the performance of performing poetry, does that have an impact on how you perform and how you think about performance of performance poetry? I think that's a really difficult one because I'm not an actor. Mm. Um, mm. And there are many, I'm very adamant that I'm not an actor. And that is said not to disparage actors but because I think they're fucking amazing mm-hmm. um, there are many reasons I'm not an actor and the main one is I wasn't very good uh, and I'm not just saying that I think it's okay to not be good at things but the other the other main reason I'm not an actor is because I hate learning lines um, and it's not that I can't do it because I can and I have and it, it just and when I when I came back to London and I start, started doing uh, spoken words here I was memorising all my poems and I was doing them off book but I wasn't enjoying it as much because it just it, 
it made me so anxious because there was a part of my brain going I have to remember the next bit and, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and it, it, I felt that it inhibited how it inhibited my ability to tell a story um, and there are some areas of performance where doing it from memory is important and adds adds to the story and is necessary but I personally don't think it's a requirement for my poetry and I don't want this thing that I love to be inhibited by something that I don't like yeah. and that makes me unhappy mm-hmm. um, I might change my mind about that one day but uh, but that's the main thing I think fuck all the rules do poetry <laughs> the way you want to do poetry that's that, that, that is yeah my thing but it's funny because I asked Tyrone for the footage of the poems that I did at the last process event and I was watching it back and I said to Tyrone what the fuck am I doing with my hands and that <laughs> reminded me of um, being at drama school because we did some training I tra- trained in directing but we did some training alongside the actors and as kind of a running joke in actor training where you're like taught to walk walk uh, walk, you know, walk around the room, and you just forget what arms are for. Yeah. Um, and that's often I fe- get, you know, feedback I give to actors, and like people, like when I watch other poets perform, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing with your hands? Be normal. I don't say, I don't say that, but, uh, um, yeah. but, but then I was watching myself back, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm also, why am I doing that? It is, mm-hmm. it is something you can spot with people who aren't used to being on stages that they tend to glue the top yeah. of their arms to their sides, and then just move their hands, their arms from the elbow upwards. Yeah. Like, yeah, but like I also dinosaurs. do that, and I'm like, yeah. why do I do that? And, and I do it on stage, yeah. and yeah, arms yeah. glued to sides, and then only range of movement from the elbow to the hands, yeah. and that's it. And and maybe I wouldn't. Maybe if I had memorized stuff and wasn't holding a book or a phone in one hand, then I could. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, to actually answer your question, so most of the work that I, most of my work as a director has been with new writing, um, and with that, the way that I view my role as a director is in service to the writer and the story that they're telling. So my core question is always, how how can I best serve this play? What does this story need? And I think it's the same thing with poetry. Um, because not all, but most of the poems that I perform are true stories, um, I think. So I'm asking, what does this story require of me as a writer? And if I'm going to perform it, what does the sharing of that work on stage in front of a live audience require of me? Um, so for example, that, that poem that I said, uh, I got the recording of Tyrone in, in that poem, it's called Another Round. And in that poem, there's a stanza about the way that I showed my love to my friends when I was drunk. Um, and there's a line, uh, where I, about shouting, these are my friends and I love them. I love them. I love them. And I like spread my arms out. I'm like, these are my friends and I love them. I love them. I love them. And then a few lines later, I get really close to the mic and I say, you are my friend and I love you. I love you. I love you. Like in a whisper. Cause I want by the end of that stanza, I want the people in that room who are hearing that poem in real time to feel like they're the people I'm talking about, like they're with me in that memory. Um, because the first questions that I ask a writer when I'm working on their play are, why did you write this? How do you want the audience to feel? And what do you want them to leave thinking about? And I wrote that poem because I wanted to honour the truth and the duality of of what alcohol gave me, as well as what it took um like took away and mm. I wanted the audience to feel like they're there with me in the moments I'm talking about because I wanted them to leave thinking about their own memories of alcohol because we've all got experiences like that where we're yelling from the rooftops about how much we love our friends um and it's a new poem so I'm still working it out and figuring out how audiences respond to it and I and that, that's also another thing I think with spoken word is that you don't really get to rehearse it until you're in front of an audience mm-hmm. because if you're communicating with them directly is yeah but I'm still working on that and there are some things that I try out but I think that's also what's really useful about how many spoken word nights there are um and the fact that I run my own is that it's sort of space to like fuck up and be messy and no one really cares because they haven't paid that much money to see it <laughs> so, going, back, um, going back to that thing about 
oral versus um, written tradition. I guess you're the stuff that you've just described with that poem and um, how your movement and your voice and your tone plays into mm. the storytelling. That is different to what you can do on the page or what got... is possible to do because yeah, you don't have situation. all those tools when you're when you're doing a a poem. Uh, uh, sorry, a poem uh, written down. So you have to find other things to to yeah. uh, make the poem work or the framework to make it work, I guess. Mm. Yeah. And I and I also think that when people are watching you perform poetry, there's I think I think at least, A, there's an assumption that what you're saying is true. Mm. Um and and an assumption that it's about you. Yeah. Because you're not really performing a cat I mean, sometimes people are, but for the most part people there's are an performing it themselves. Okay. Yeah. Um so we also get a sense of who you are as a person, as well as the story that you're telling. Um, so I'm always also very aware of how I want to come across around hmm. poem in my presence on stage, I guess. But yeah. I think, I think also possibly my work in poetry influences my work as a director as well. Um, because I, because of parts of language in a play script that I see that not that not everyone does mm. because I'm so in in the spoken word community is that I see turns of phrase and, and ways that people say think put things on a page that a character says that not everyone does see yeah if that made any yeah. sense I'm never sure whether things I say make sense <laughs> <laughs> it does it does so how do you approach writing a poem versus writing a play and also is there how do you pick necessarily this idea will work for this this idea is it just one's lo- one's longer? <laughs> no, but I have a lot to say about that too. Um, in terms of like how I pick what form things should go in, I think I know if something's a poem. Um, it's sometimes I'm not sure whether something should be. Uh, if it, I think if it, if there are other characters in it, I know it's not a poem, and then I have have to think. I tend to start writing like bits of dialogue and see if it maybe needs to be. a like a tv show or a or a play or um like I, then i think i have a bit more trouble picking a form but i think it's very clear to me when things are permanent in terms of approach i'm a lot more confident with poetry i think just because i've been doing it so so much longer and i've done so much more of it um that i with poems i just tend to start writing and then i figure it out whereas with plays i have to do a lot more planning and research and reading and it takes a lot more cerebral and emotional energy than writing a poem and I think I'm a lot more critical of plays as an audience member or a reader because I think this is a really bold, strong statement, but I think they need a reason to exist. Hmm. Plays are so expensive to put on and they're also, <laughs> yeah. as you said, longer. <clears throat> so you're asking an audience to sit through like an hour or more as opposed to five minutes. And I think if you're asking for that much of someone's t- of like other people's time, you owe something to them. Yeah. Mm. Um, as I think Hannah Hannah Gordon, yeah, she used to say at Spoken Word London, you, you know, five minute slots because you can listen to anything for five minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I've seen so much bad theatre, and I'm often more annoyed about the fact that I've wasted my evening yeah. than the fact that I paid twenty quid to see a bad play. But then I'm also thinking about how many incredible plays never get put on or yeah. do get put on, but on tiny stages with a small budget because producing houses and investors won't take a risk on an unknown playwright mm-hmm. or a play that might be like too political or have too specific an audience. So when I see a play in a commercial event, I'm really trying to 
I'm trying to be really careful with my words because I want to continue working in this industry. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I see a play in a commercial venue that clearly costs like over a million pounds to produce, but that I don't think is really saying anything important or new or that will have an emotional impact mm. of any kind. And I'm thinking, why did someone spend a million pounds on this to be on for a year when like the Ministry of Lesbian Affairs got one month at Soho and now may never be seen again Mm -hmm. because maybe, I don't know the reasons for that, but maybe I predict, you know, maybe investors didn't think they could sell sell that show or a show with that name. And that show was probably the best show I saw last year. So when I'm writing a play, I'm thinking about all those things because I work in the industry and I know so much about everything that factors into the fact, all the different factors that make it statistically unlikely that anyone will ever see that play yeah. or, or read that play or hear that play and I'm also thinking about the fact that it will be someone else directing it and other people performing it and all of that's a lot of pressure and the stakes are really high mm-hmm. whereas poetry because again because I've been doing it for so long and it's kind of like second nature in some ways but I also give myself permission to fail because like the stakes aren't that high because also I think people tend to come to poetry with a really open mind whereas people expect something specific or expect a lot more from theatre which is not to say that I don't take poetry seriously mm-hmm. because I absolutely take poetry way too seriously. But if I write a bad poem, I've wasted between 10 minutes and one month of my own time. And if I've performed it, I've wasted many, fi- maybe five minutes of someone else's time. If I write a bad play, I've wasted years of my life. Um, and if that play gets put on, I've wasted a few hours of the audience's time, months of the casting crew's time, and like up to hundreds of thousands of pounds mm-hmm. of someone else's money. So... If I'm gonna if I'm gonna write a poet if I'm if I start writing a poem and it doesn't work, that's fine. If I start writing a play and it doesn't work, I'm crushed. Just a lot more investment all round, isn't there? Like investment yeah, exactly. both in terms of money and time from you and the audience yeah. and and producers and it's just a complete yeah. like writing a book or, or like a pamphlet is like yeah. something that a human can feasibly do. Like you, you know, self publishing yeah. Tigva, you can do that. You can make that work. But as soon as it's a play or a TV show or something more than that, it becomes something that more people have to get involved mm. in for, in order for it to be a thing in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And I sometimes I say things like really vehemently and then I'm like, no, nah. like 10 minutes later, I'm like, I don't mean that. Um, <laughs> but I'm trying to be more careful about that. But I think also with poetry, I think, I think poetry is a lot more subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think good or bad, important, not important, you know, whatever, I think it's a lot more subjective with poetry. I think with plays, I, they are sub- like whether a play is good or bad or important or not is subjective. But I think with poetry is a lot more open. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't know. Check back with me in a month. <laughs> I might change my mind. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, you recently, well, your last year, you more successfully than me went on a mission to get a hundred rejections in a year. How did that go, and what did you learn from the experience? Um, so this is my second year doing that. Um, I was inspired by Michelle Payne, um, who was the first, I probably not the first person to do it, but the first person that I saw do it publicly. Um, and I, I, I decided to give it a go and I have like a spreadsheet of, um, of everything I apply for. And I include in that what I sent off, um, when I should, when I when I expect to hear back, and also like what stage it's in, and it's color coded, and like you know, so if I get an interview, then I change that to green, and it's green as like in conversation or whatever, um, and I keep a tally of the statistics. So not just not just that I got rejected, but did I get rejected after an interview? Was I shortlisted? Mm. Um, did they give feedback? 
did they give um did they respond at all um because sometimes I never hear back but then I see on Twitter who got the job or I you know or they publish you know they say oh magazine is now available to pre-order and I'm like well I didn't I'm not in it then I guess um and sometimes they say we'll get back to you we'll only get back to successful people um so if you haven't heard by this date that means you've been you know you've you've not been successful or whatever. And that's fine because I understand that not everyone has the time. Um, I think in, in terms of what I've learned is is like <laughs> writing and directing theatre, film, TV and publishing are brutal industries and everyone's talented. It's not It's not enough to be talented. It's not enough to be good. And that's really hard. Um and something that I always tell, like, was I, I teach acting as well, and I've, I've taught creative writing as well in various forms, and something I always tell people is, if you love anything else as much as you love this, do that. Because, and that seems defeatist, mm. but, but like, doing, doing what you, doing this, it, this is really hard, and it requires you to have a fucking thick skin, and, like, like thicker than a rhino's, and also be sensitive. Mm. And that's really, really hard to do. So, if I loved anything else as much as I love this, I wouldn't fucking bother because it wouldn't be worth it. Um, and, you know, one of my former students loved acting, but she also loved teaching. So she applied to drama school and she also applied to university to do teaching. She didn't get into drama school. She got, into, she got into university. So she's going to go be a teacher. And she's so excited about it because she does love teaching as much as she loved acting. Um, and like, there's a lot to be said for like persevering but it also takes, like, you know, as I said on Twitter, the first the first meeting I ever had with my agent, which was a year and a half before she signed me as a client, um, she said, no overnight success is there ever an overnight success. Mm. Um, Blanche McIntyre, who is one of the most successful theatre directors in currently working in London, I think, um, was, like, my agent told me she struggled really, like, really hard for 10 years before she made it big and then suddenly everyone was talking about Blanche McIntyre um and she's fucking brilliant I'm in like maybe sixth sixth seventh year of my my careers in in theatre and film and and it's slow I'm rambling at this point but it's it's slow and I wasn't getting very much work before I started doing this hundred rejections thing and that's because I wasn't putting anything out there yeah Mm. like chuck enough stuff into the void some of it will come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did some bad maths and I think I initially said it was like 21% success rate and then I redid the maths and I was like, no, that was incorrect. But a 17.5% success rate in an industry that is tearing people down constantly yeah. is not bad yeah, at all. About one mm. in five is, is still, like, it's good, yeah. 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 yeah, not bad at all. And and I think, I think in terms of things I've learned, like I think put three things on my... Three things on Twitter or four things on Twitter is that, you know, these industries are oversaturated with talent. It's not personal. Sometimes my shit isn't that good. Like <laughs> if I, the, always the first time a poem gets rejected for publication, I always go back at it and I'm like, does anything need to be changed? Do I need to redraft? And sometimes I do. And then I send it out again and it gets accepted. And sometimes like, there's one poem that's been rejected from about 30 places and I'm still like, no, this is the best that that poem is going to be. If people don't want it, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's the title poem for my next book. Um, <laughs> but also that, that I, you know, as a director, I also hire people. So it also allows me to reflect on my own hiring practices. And if someone, if an, if someone who's hiring for a job does something really shitty and then I go back and go, have I ever done that? Do I 
need to change the way that I'm working. But also, I just think, I honestly think it's the only way to do it. (laughs) Like, you have to put your stuff out there and be willing to be knocked back and keep fucking going. Um, In terms of, like, magazine and journal submissions, I don't even notice those anymore. I'm just, I just put them, like, mark them off as read. And then I'm like, cool, that poem is now free to go somewhere else. Fine. How do you have enough to keep going to get 100, though? Uh, I never seem to have 100, 100 poems to send out. I don't know. Oh, I've got about 150 that are quote, quote, available. Hmm. But also, like, bear in mind that I'm not just applying for, I'm not just sending submissions out. I'm also, because I work across, yeah. you know, three different industries, I'm I'm sending out applications for job, for, yeah. like, directing jobs. I'm getting in touch with people saying, do you have any openings? Can we have a meeting? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's loads of director and, you know, playwright opportunities. I've been rejected by the BBC, like, four times. Um, um I got, I got a, oh, another, another really good reason, at least to keep track of these is that I got a rejection from Disney last year and I have no idea what it was for. (laughs) (laughs) Just out of the blue, Disney said, we don't want you just so you know. Yeah. So I was like, (laughs) I don't remember what this is for. And I know that a lot of places say, if you've applied X amount of times, you can't apply again. Or if you've, you know, you can't apply with the script you've sent before. Yeah. So now I'm like, I need to keep track. Otherwise, I'm going to send the same things to the same places. That's so funny. So, I mean, on that note of sort of putting yourself out there, obviously, Tikva is a self-published collection. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the kind of process of publishing something yourself. You know, what made you decide to do it? and, And would you recommend it? Um... This is, yeah, this is a question I get asked a lot and I'm never really sure how to answer. So I decided I wanted to publish a book because I've been doing this for a long time and Burning Eye open submissions every other year. Mm. And when they opened for submissions in 2018, um, I was like, I'm going to submit something because why fucking not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was putting poems together, but I didn't really have a full concept for a book. It was just a bunch of poems. Yeah. Um, and it was getting closer to the deadline. And I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to pitch this because it's just some really good poems and then I decided you know what I don't need to rush to do this just because just for the sake of it because I want to book out I can wait two years to submit again Hmm. um and like if it's going to be in print forever if I'm going to publish a book I want to get it right and then like a month after the deadline I had an idea for a concept and I was like (laughs) damn if I'd had that a month earlier (laughs) but then but I had this concept that what would tie them together and and make it a book that had a narrative and told a story um, and then I had two years to, I was like, two years, great. I have two years to work on it, get it together, get some feedback, make it the best that it can be. Um, and then I started, so I did that and I started, uh, submitting it to places. Um, but I was also still writing it, writing, writing other stuff that didn't really fit into that book. So I was also writing the same story while I was sort of shopping Tikva out to publishers. Yeah. Um, and then by the time Tikva was published, like already, same story was already written. Um, but I also in that time learned a lot more about publishing and I found other places that I wanted to submit to. And I had done the the Roundhouse Poetry Weekender, um, which she mentioned in yep. my lovely, lovely introduction. Um, and I got invited to do that because I'd been, I think, longlisted or shortlisted a couple of times for their Young Poets Scheme and then I aged out. So they yep. invited me to the Weekender. Um, and something, I think it was Cecilia that said it, that to, to be a poet, you have to write a fuck ton and read a fuck ton. <laughs> And I was already writing a fuck ton, so I started reading, buying and reading full poetry collections from various publishers. Um, and and I had this list of publishers that I wanted to submit to who'd put out books that I really loved. Because um, I didn't want to just go with any publisher, just yeah, for the sake yeah, of yeah. it. Um, I 
I wanted those publishers because they had put out books that I loved. Um, so by that time, I felt really ready. By the time the new submissions round came round again, it was in 2020, and I felt really, really ready. And I had, you know, same story was pretty much finished. And I felt like I was already moving on from the poems and Tikva. I was evolving as a poet. I was getting better. My poems were getting better. Yeah. Uh, but I still really wanted Tikva to be my debut. I was like, this is the this is the book that I want to start with in terms mm. of my books. Yeah. Um, and I have sort of thought about was that the right was that right the right decision? Should I have waited? And but it's not really worth dwelling on because it's done. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Tikva was rejected by every one of those publishers. Um, of about twelve, I think that I that were on my list. Um. It was rejected by every single one of them, but the feedback that they all gave was, this is really good and we love it, but we have to turn down a lot of really good work. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't getting feedback on any of the content, yeah. which yeah. is always really frustrating because I'm like, and that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, it, it never stops being frustrating because I'm like, okay, so I'm good. Mm-hmm. Other people are also good. Great. Um, and then by the time Burning Eye opened submissions again, um, I decided, okay, if Burning Eye say no and Verve say no, I'll do it myself. Yeah. Um, and I'd already done loads of research, loads and loads of research, and I'd drawn up a, a, like a long, like a really detailed plan of how I would do it, yeah. what it would cost, how I'd make the money back, how I'd promote it, and all of that. So then by the time I got rejected from Verve, I was just excited because I was like, oh, now I get to okay, publish my cool. book. Yeah. Um, in terms of how I did it, so far I think it's pretty much the same process as doing it with a publisher except now I have more support so I have to do less of the heavy lifting myself yeah. but it also means that I know exactly what needs to be done yeah. so when I had my meeting with Stuart from Burning from from Verb um, I was like right this this and this these are my questions this is what I want this is what my contract needs to look like and he was like he said that it was funny because some poets just go yeah do my book whatever yeah, and I'm yeah. like I know exactly how mm, I want yeah. this to go um, so once I had the manuscripts written I sent it out to some of my most trusted peers and collaborators um, and then once I was, uh, sorry, I redrafted, got feedback. Um, and then once I was happy, I was like, cool, text is done. I commissioned a brilliant artist that I know, Jessica Sinclair, to do the cover. Um, and that worked by, I, I sent her the photo I wanted for the front, the photo I wanted for the back. And then I sent her the full manuscript and I'd highlighted a few poems, like five poems, I think, for her to take inspiration from. And the cover ended up just being her illustrated versions of the photos I'd sent her. Yeah. But then she added like a couple of things that the poems had like inspired in her. So there's a poem about my dad singing Scarborough Fair to me. So she added, there's like a little part that, that's, that cuts into the cover and it's got parsley, sage, rosemary and thyme on it. So those are on the cover. And we'd also talked a lot about how pretty much every poet I know has a poem about kintsugi, <laughs> um, the Japanese art of repairing plates with uh, broken broken things with gold. So the you know that's how I got the golds for the mountains. Um, anyway, and then when it was ready to go, I sent it off to printers and I had show- I'd done loads of research into different printers and I registered the ISBN with them as well. And I think I made my money back in three months, which I, I know is was not that's relentless promotion I don't think that just happens but it was pretty simple as long as you've kind of got your shit together as to whether I'd recommend it either way my sort of thing of is like don't rush to publish a book I really I think I was ready at that time but I also it meant I had complete control over everything and it also meant that now for my second book I have a publisher and I am in a much better place to be able to you know negotiate and demand for things I want and I, yeah, I know what's going to happen now. Um, and so that's really useful. So I, tell us about that next book. Yeah, same story. 
so I so I finally got Verve to I got finally got the yes from Verve. Uh, second time lucky. Um, this collection is really really different, um, and it, I think is a massive jump in terms of quality from Tikva. I think the poems are a lot better. I think that makes sense. I think writers generally get better over time. You should get better. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should. Although actually, like I was thinking about this, and then I thought, you know what? I read a really bad Stephen King book this year mm. that was published this decade, okay. and I was like, why is? And I love Stephen King, so I read this book, and I was like dude why did you write a bad book <laughs> um, but he's Stephen written King is known so for many out a lot of books though right like... yeah. yeah but that's the thing is that i think it's the only book of his that i've ever read though i was like why is this i was like this is just bad i actually maybe, find that yeah, comforting because yeah. the more poetry i do the more i still don't have the ability to judge my own work i can judge other people's work better yeah. than i used to <laughs> but i can't go mm. yes smash it out of the park with this one it's great and neither can I go until I performed it and kind of got a bit of like oh oh, maybe that didn't land Mm. where I thought Mm. so the fact is even even if Stephen King can't fucking tell if it's a good book or not it's consoling I'm quite good at telling myself my work is bad so I can be quite (laughs) judgy (laughs) yeah I that's that's an interesting one though because there are a lot there are a lot of um poems that I've written that I'm like I don't really like this Mm. and then Tyrone reads them and he's like this is my favorite I'm like why it's (laughs) bad (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but things reach people in different ways. Yeah. Um, weird, yeah, this this collection is very very different. Um it's structured the same way. I think I like I like the number 3. And I I like the numbers 3 and 7. So Tikva's in three parts. This is also in three parts. It doesn't have like, you know, the prologues and the epilogues and the interludes that Tikva had. Um it's it's a collection of poems sort of in the spirit of James Baldwin's a suggestion that every writer is telling the same story over and over and over again um and this the story that the poem the title poem um was a short poem that i wrote the day that sarah everard's body was found um so that was and i initially started that poem by by saying if um, if that is true, if what James Baldwin said is true, then the story that we are telling, that people socialised as female are telling over and over again, is I walked down the street today and I survived. And then Tyrone said, cut those lines, just title the poem, same story. Hmm. So that's where that came from. And, and the first section of, of same story is, is about all those really early messages we get um, about our bodies and what it means to be a woman and um and the things that we wrestle with as in our socialization as girls and then becoming women um the middle part is the really difficult bit uh that the middle section is is about sex uh, which includes but is not limited to sexual assault um and about how that sort of the result of that early messaging is my entire relationship with sex <laughs> in my like from the age if you know from ages like 16 to 25 um and the final section is about f- friendship and platonic love and intimacy and how we heal by by surrounding ourselves with people and and trust so that that like that final section is sort of a like this all happens and it's happened to most of us and it's okay because we're all here together um and i try and end things in on an uplifting note um 
I'm very scared to put this out into the world because um, I recently read an incredible book called Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again by Catherine Angel. Not poetry, it's non-fiction, but at the start of the book she talks about her previous book and that her previous book that I haven't read was a, a lot about, a lot of it was about her sex life and she said that that scared her because she'd written a book that could at some point Oh, um, be her downfall if she I think the sense was like she's put her sex life in a book therefore if she was ever sexually assaulted that's a public record and could be used against her in court oh, and that occurred Christ. to me of yeah sorry that's really dark yeah. you might have to put a content note on this episode <laughs> um, but 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 it's true and that like that that recent thing of like I, I can't even this is the awful thing is I can't even remember which man it was like which story it was about a woman who'd been killed but that this man had tried to approach three women that night um and then killed the final one the one that he did manage to and it was that sense of like he went out like it you know you can tell women to try and be safe as much as possible but at the end of the day if a man wants to kill a woman he will Mm. it just might not be you um so that's same story yeah I haven't actually talked at all about um, what the book's about, but that's that's it. One of the poems in that book, <laughs> in the first section, is called Planting Seeds. Um, and it was recently, it was published in Last Leaves magazine. Um, and it was inspired by ha- that line at the end of Hamilton, the musical, where he says, what is a legacy? A legacy is planting seeds in a garden you will never get to see. Um, and that is, Planting Seeds is one of the few poems I have written that is very open about what it means. And in the context of, if you read that poem in Last Leaves magazine, people will take loads of different meanings from that. But if you yeah. read it in the context of the book, same story, it's very clear. That poem is about how the collective responsibility of a society that teaches us re- these really uh, early and really toxic messages about gender and sex and sexuality um, and masculinity as well. Mm. Um, and the effect that that has on people as adults sounds like a really interesting really layered book i've actually been lucky enough to read it already and it's really fucking good it's really fun (laughs) when's it out it is it is out in november 2023 yes rebecca was one of one of i think five people very like who very kindly read and gave me feedback on the draft before i even sent it to verb so it's partially thanks to rebecca that i got that yes um but uh Yes, thanks for saying it's good. That's always nice when other people are like, "Ah, oh, I can vouch for I this book. Vouch. That is good." No, I like Tick, but I agree this is this is even better. Um, yes, mm. yeah, it's really good. Nice, cool. Um, and on that note, do you have a piece of writing advice or a prompt you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I I have three. They're really short. Can I do all of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah go for it. The more the better. One is write bad poetry. Mm-hmm. You will not write good poetry unless you're also writing bad poetry. Bold statement, but I think it's true. Actually mm-hmm. read and watch other poets. That's the second one. Read and watch other poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, take every piece of advice with a pinch of salt because a lot of poets have a lot to say about the rules of poetry and I think a lot of it's bullshit. Take everything with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Incredible. Awesome. And so if people want to find out more about your stuff and be ready for this book when it comes out uh please plug away where can we find you you can find me on instagram and twitter at kayla tmf kayla t for tango m for mike f for foxtrot i am relentless with my self-promotion so you can find out everything i'm doing (laughs) there amazing and uh did you want to share another poem to play us out 
Yes. Um, I have one from the book, if you would like it. Is it new shit? Yes, please. It is new shit. No one's ever heard this. New, new shit. shit. An exclusive. <laughs> An exclusive. So um, each uh, each section of the book is bracketed by two poems that follow each other. Um, and they're dated. So, so the you know, the the poetry journey of the book starts in 2016 and ends in 2041. Um, and so this is the second bracket poem of the second section of the book. And it's called A Person I Know 2021 that I wrote in response to a poem called A Person I Know that I later called A Person I Know 2018. <laughs> um and it's important to note, I am going to slightly explain this one. The second section of the book starts with a quote from the narcissist cookbook, who is a close friend of mine um, and a brilliant musician. You should check him out on Spotify. But uh, at the start of his track, Phylactery, he says, um, Leonard Cohen wrote 80 verses to Hallelujah before he settled on the final five. Sometimes the, the results of our labour justify the lengths we go to get there. This is not one of those times. Um, and I've also stolen another line from a different one of his songs for one line of this poem. Um, <laughs> anyway, so this, this follows that quote as well. <clears throat> we meet through an algorithm. He speaks my own words back to me with a middle-class Aaron lilt and a tone that tilts towards tender. Maybe it is possible to fall in love with the sound of someone's voice. And that was the start of the slowest, most deliberate relationship I have ever been a part of. None of this was because of him. I am not healing because someone showed me what it is like to be platonically loved and physically desired and that the coexistence of these things in one person does not mean I am in danger. But I showed someone my soul, piece by piece, step by tiny step over the course of eight months. And now we will be in the same place at the same time for the first time. And there is not a single part of me that is afraid. Within an hour, we are cocooned together in his bed, skin on soft skin. There is no tension, no question, no tightly roped high-wire walk of will we kiss. There is just this, a friend. I am tired of writing trauma. Tired of building homes with people whose roots crack the foundations open. Weary of wanting to be touched, only to be punished by the wanting. Hoarse from sharpening my vocal cords, hoping that my bark will be enough to keep my teeth from gnashing. Tired of saying stop when all I should have to say is yes. Would that I could rip up all these verses in favour of just that one moment in the bed of someone whose intimacy did not scold me or scold me or shame me into being smaller. is not conditional on what I can offer. To feel small in his arms feels safer than I have ever felt being small. I am not a small woman. I am a force whose reckoning would chase you to the corners of the earth, would banish you to the desert or drown you in the deepest part of the ocean, suck the air from your lungs and let you sink into its bed. Were I not so exhausted? Were there not so bloody many of you? Were you not so much physically stronger on average than me? I am not a small woman, but you could hurt me if you wanted to. You have been sharpening your teeth since birth, after all. From the first time you latched at the breast of a woman, you were all teeth. I have been writing this story since before I was born, since the sonogram showed a vagina well before I entered the world through one. My mother says my name means crown of flowers, symbolising victory, but in Gaelic it means slim, fair, it means small. 
I have written this story with my tongue and teeth and I have written it with my hands. I have written it on bruised necks and bitten lips and in trails of kisses from ribs to bellies and gripped hands on inner thighs. I have written it with clutched wrists and clenched fists and mists of spit and the slick slip of bodies connecting. I will rewrite it each time I am naked with anyone new. Every time the nurse inserts a speculum, I will beg her not to hold me down. If the doctors find a tumour, I will cry for them to cover me and treat me as a man assigned so at birth. I have written this story over three dozen times in discharge and sweat, in tears for those who didn't survive theirs, for the ones my friends tell at sleepovers whispered into the bottoms of their wine glasses, details licked into their Rizzler before they are set alight. Yeah, they say. Me too. So when he says he wants to kiss me, I ask, why? We discuss at length the energy shift and the swift strength of this connection. He shows his working and there is logic in the lust, but I trust him when he says, this is enough. He holds me a little longer. I am safe here. I show him my abandoned verses, the curses I have lifted from my memory and the blank spaces that have shifted out of view. I don't remember them all, I tell him. That's okay, he says. Leonard Cohen didn't either. This month's book is Mannerism by Yomi Sode, chosen by Laurie. Laurie, why did you choose this book? Why did I choose it? I chose it because it's kind of been a hot book of 2022. The year just gone, I think it's fair to say. There's been quite a lot of uh, coverage of it. I've been hearing a lot of um, good things about it and wanted to finally uh, read it. I bought it a couple of months ago back in Foils in Charing Cross Road when they had a big display with um, with mannerism and uh, our previous guest, the Repeat Beat Poets book, uh, on the same outward-facing display. And I was like, I'm buying both of those right now. So that was very nice. There's three pages of glowing review quotes before you even get to the collection. There this are. Is, this is a highly <laughs> rated... I mean, it is Penguin. Penguin want to sell books. And I thought it was quite... A, not weird but like a broad range of different uh yeah. different critical praise for the book um diane abbott so, and um, yeah i mean yomi is one of those people who has been on the london poetry scene for a long time really experienced poet really well-loved poet who i don't really know very well i've seen them a couple of times but don't you know we're not kind of close in any way but i know we've got a lot of mutual friends so who we are really excited to, to be reading this book and we're really excited for it coming out that was a taster um, for our book club mini episode which will be out later this month wherever you get your podcasts in a moment we're going to have a poem from Ron McIntyre to play us out but before we do that what should our listeners be looking out for this month Hannah what Hang have you got second. so details TBC because at the time of recording it has not yet launched but the forward prizes for poetry are going live on the 6th of January um so these are for new poetry in the UK and Ireland, uh, honouring fresh voices alongside internationally established names, um, as it says on the website, and it, it is a big deal. There's prizes for the best single poem, there's prizes for collections. The winner for the best collection in 2022 was All the Men I Never Married by Kim Moore, which we reviewed. Ooh, and um, yes. the judges this year include Joelle Taylor and Bernadine Evaristo. So... That, nice. that is the oh, calibre nice. we are talking for this one. So on the 6th of January, go find out more about how you can potentially enter if you are eligible. 
Amazing. I've also got a poetry competition for you. So we've got the Ver Poets, so V-E-R, not to be confused with Verve or probably other verse, verb, that all that sort of thing, but Ver, V-E-R Poets, uh, which is a poetry society based in St Albans, apparently. Uh, and they've got an open competition for 2023. Uh, first prize is £600, second prize is 300 third prize is 100 uh, Winning and other selected poems will be published in the competition anthology. Um, and the closing date for that is April 30th, 2023. Um, it's judged by the poet Julia Webb. And it's open to poems on any theme and in any form to poets age 16 or over. If you are interested in that, go to uh, verpoets.co.uk. So V-E-R poets.co.uk and click on the poetry competitions tab and there'll be more information about how to enter that. Okay, I've got one which is that the Vault Festival is returning to London this year. Um, I can't remember whether there actually was a vault festival last year after COVID or whether it didn't happen, but it's back for another year. Or maybe a reduced one. But yeah, they're back with a whole host of different kinds of events. It's at Waterloo in the vaults under Waterloo Station. It's really cool. I saw the Loud Poets there a few years ago. And uh, that starts on the 24th of January and keeps running until... The 19th of March is not just poetry, there's also theatre, comedy, cabaret, and all sorts of other bits and bobs. Um, but there's a good range of poetry and spoken word events at that. I believe they're starting on the 2nd of February and going through uh, into the rest of February and March. Uh, so that's well worth checking out. And then anything you guys want to plug? Sure. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Laurie Eves Poet, which is L-A-U-R-I-E-E-A-V-E-S Poet, or on Twitter at Mr. Leaves, M-R-L-E-A-V-E-S. My book Biceps is out on Burning Eye Books or in Brick Red Cassette Form on Buried Vinyl, and you can pick up both versions from my website, which is laurieeves.com and stream the audio version wherever you stream audio. Hannah? Uh, I am Hannah Chutzpah on all the socials. Chutzpah is C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H. Um, and I have two books for sale, or a one pamphlet, one book uh, for sale on my website, which is hannahutzpah.com. You can find me on Twitter and TikTok as at Rebecca K. Cooney, Instagram as at any name but Becky, Facebook as Rebecca Cooney-Poet, and my website is rebeccakcooney.wordpress.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at deaddarlingspod, Facebook as deaddarlingspodcast, and you can email us at deaddarlingspodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so with money, should you want to, by donating to our coffee page, which is ko-fi.com forward slash podcast. Or, you know what, if you don't want to do that, absolutely fair enough. It, times are tough. If you just don't feel like doing that, if you, if you can't do that, not a problem. If you could leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word, that would be great. Also, give us a shout out on Twitter. Let us know you enjoyed it or any other social media platform. In a moment, we're going to have a poem from Ron McIntyre to play us out. Uh, Before we do, I just want to say thank you to them for letting us share their work. Thank you to our lovely guest, Kayla Martell Feldman, to my co-hosts, Laurie and Hannah, to Texas Radio for our theme music, and of course, to you guys for listening. Happy New Year, one and all, and I hope it's a good one. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye. You're on mute. Cancelled people in the news, spouting all their cancelled views. No chance for any to refute. You've got no say because you're on mute. You might want to disagree, contribute to the repartee, but dissenting voices got the boot.
no one hears because you're on mute. We've never heard so many lies. The paper's full of porky pies. Journalists of ill repute write what they like because you're on mute. Right-wing rampage in the press, berating people in distress. You might be articulate, astute, but you're left-wing, so you're on mute. The rich-poor split is widening faster. They think the poor should live on pasta. They pocket their ill-gotten loot. You can't object because you're on mute. What should we do with refugees? They say, let's ship them overseas, then back to their party for a toot. Your view's discarded. You're on mute. Divide and rule LGBT. Debate conversion therapy. Don't want them to electrocute, but you're queer and trans, so you're on mute. Vicious mediocrities pass laws that boost hostilities. It's fashionable to persecute, but you can't complain because you're on mute. Ignore important information. Covid has a new mutation. Policies do not compute. But you're at risk, so you're on mute. Soon, you can't vote without ID. Another disenfranchisee as Tory trees bear rancid fruit. Yet another way to be on mute. The grifters want to bleed us dry, put prices up to all-time highs. Their profits leave us destitute. Quids in for rats in business suits. Our liberties are closing down in city, country, rundown town. How long till jackboots and salutes? How long will we remain on mute? They say we should eat mouldy bread, face winter bills with mounting dread. You might think we should reboot, but no one cares because you're on mute. How much more can people take from greedy bastards on the make? It's time to stand up and dispute their right to keep us all on mute. Fight for the right to disagree, for our bodily autonomy. Power should not be absolute. Must be their turn to be on mute. My name's Ron McIntyre and you can find all my social media and poetry links at linktree slash Ron McIntyre. M-C-I-N-T-Y-R-E. You can buy my poetry pamphlet Random Trail, published this time last year at ronmacintyre.bigcartel.com Thanks for listening. Thank you.